are listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. rights in the United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio. And it's sure it is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity Tennessee Valley, this is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, David Story. It is Saturday, February 13th, 2021, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. The recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, February 14th, 2021, on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama. Today we are talking to Jonah Furman. He did uh, labor organizing for Bernie Sanders and AOC and now has a very nerdy labor newsletter. So we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be going through bills that have uh, that are being pushed through the Alabama State Legislature and more on today's Valley Labor Report. So thanks for tuning in, folks. We appreciate your time. Uh, if you want to see what we're up to throughout the week, get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A-L. David is on Twitter at Radical Unionist. That's spelled R-A-D-I-C-L Unionist. If you missed part of the show and want to go back and watch it later, you can search YouTube for the Valley Labor Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there, and we clip segments throughout the week. That way, if there's just one thing that you were interested in, you can watch that without having to watch the whole show. We do upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So, to see if we are on your listening platform of choice, you can go to thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. We have a website, thevalleylaborreport.org. And if you appreciate our work and want to help us stay on the air, consider throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And one more thing before we get started to the show, the North Alabama DSA has a necessities drive every Saturday at the IBEW Union Hall on Clinton Avenue across from Campus 805 and Yellowhammer Brewing uh, from 3 to 5 p.m. Uh, this Saturday and every Saturday. So bring PPE, blankets, clothes, non-perishable food items to the North Alabama DSA's Necessities Necessities Drive this Saturday and every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. at the IBEW Union Hall on Clinton Avenue. The donations will be sent to the Manor House. So today we are talking to Jonah Furman. He previously worked in labor organizing for Bernie Sanders and AOC. We're going to be talking to him about his new newsletter. Jonah, thanks for talking to us. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Great show. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So, Jonah, tell us about your newsletter. What what are you trying What are you trying to do in this in in this new newsletter? 
Sure, yeah. Just started uh, in earnest this year. Uh, it's called whogetsthebird.substack.com is where you can subscribe to it for free or chip in. Um, yeah, it's, you know, the hope is basically to do two things. One is to keep an eye on the actually existing labor movement. There used to be in this country a robust labor press. Things would, you know, big union conventions would be front page news in national newspapers. Local union activity would be front page news and local news. There would be union papers in different industries, different shops. You know, big factories would have their own paper. States would have their statewide labor paper written by, you know, union members and organizers and things like that. So to some extent, I'm just trying to track all the stuff that I track personally of what's going on in the U.S. labor movement that's not being tracked anymore uh, and share it out and have people keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening. I, I feel like a lot of our labor writing or, you know, academia, it's history, right? We talk about things that happened 50 years ago or more, and there's very little sense of what's happening this week, this month. Um, and the other part of it is, you know, so I post these weekly updates that are, you know, too ambitious. We try and put in everything that has happened that week uh, in terms of union organizing in the U.S., but also uh, work on longer form essays, critical views, things like that. I think another thing we've missed because we've lost this labor press and all of this is somewhat downstream from losing, you know, a big labor movement mm -hmm. is we've lost people talking about what should the labor movement be doing or what's changed or what did it used to be like or, you know, what are the actual existing tensions? We all know we're, we're all pro-union and it's an extremely, you know, obviously pro-union newsletter I put out, but it's not enough to just cheer on the union. Obviously, things haven't been going great for, you know, depending how you count it, 40 years for the U.S. labor movement. And I think getting a little more deep into that with examples that aren't historical but are contemporary is really key for anybody who wants to organize or even just understand what's going on with the unions today, whether you, you know, are a union worker, you want to organize a union at your, at your place of work, or you're a political operative, wherever you are on that spectrum, if you don't understand what's going on in the labor movement today, I don't think you have much of a chance of intervening in any way, whether that's locally or on a national scale. Right, right, and you said that you, uh, you know, you're trying to track what's going on. What are the 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 things that you that you bring out in your newsletter? Yeah, so the weekly, I mean, these weekly updates really are. I, I lead heavily with new organizing, and that's partly just my opinion on what has to happen in the labor movement, right? Like, if we're not organizing new shops, you can do the math however you want. But for example, in 2020, we lost 323,000 union jobs, and in January of this year through new organizing we organize something like 2000 new union jobs mm -hmm. so if you do the math it's never we're going to zero and we've been going to zero slowly so i lead with new organizing which means i try and do a comprehensive list of every new shop that's filed for an election with the labor relations board uh you know in the private sector these are shops across the country from two workers working as mechanics to 200 workers in a white collar legal firm whoever it is all over uh, every union and i also track um you know votes that happen so with the nlrb you might know you file for an election six weeks later if you're lucky you get a vote usually it's more like a couple months um and sometimes it's years so just tracking that is a project in itself and then besides that is trying to get people a feel for what's going on in local unions across the country so in our labor movement as it exists you have 
every union puts out a national press release each week on some piece of legislation or something that happened in the news or they're weighing in in some way. But to get the real flavor of what's going on in the labor movement, you know, on the ground floor where there's actual workers participating as opposed to kind of, you know, people writing press releases, which are, are useful, but don't give you the real flavor. Uh, you know, you kind of just have to keep your eye on local news across the country. So there's more than you realize there's strike authorization votes happening here and there this week, just off the top of my head, you know, we're looking at 700 uh, truck drivers in Arizona have authorized a strike uh, for a grocery distributor there. Uh, hundreds of nurses in Massachusetts are talking about a strike authorization. Last week, there was a small school district outside Pittsburgh that was on strike. They went back to work without a contract. Things like this, if you don't know that that's happening or you can't track that that's going on, it's really hard to get a sense beyond you know national headlines of what is the labor movement. So we're all watching Amazon in Alabama following every twist and turn. And I love it. I love that the New York Times is writing about it, but they're not writing about, you know, thousands of other workers who are taking action and whose lives are being transformed by the labor movement in real time. Um, and it's just being missed on a national level because it's all local stories. It's it's interesting. John, this is David. Good morning, John. Good to see hey, you again. Uh, yeah. It's interesting what you say about the New York Times writing about it and, you know, of course, writing about Amazon and not so much everything else. And that's kind of, you know, uh, me growing up in, in like the underground metal and punk scene, I kind of look at, uh, make that, make that, uh, that the, the two combine. In, in other words, when I was growing up, this whole underground scene, we, everybody that was in the scene knew about it. And we had, you know, people that wrote little articles and, and passed out flyers and things like that. And that's, and I'm looking at the labor movement now and, and specifically, like your newsletter and like strike wave that that's that uh publishes a lot of things and we all know about those things but they're but it's almost like this underground scene of my teenage years everybody that you know i follow you you follow me kim kelly all the brothers and sisters in the labor movement but it's not getting any mainstream traction hmm. and i wonder you know and you may not be the person to answer this but i'm going to ask the question anyways if you could speak to what do we have to do i mean like you said at the beginning a lot i mean you know a lot of the major newspapers and some of the minor ones you know 40 years ago had an entire section devoted to organized labor and and it's moved and i, and I know a lot of it's because the internet uh has has taken those funds out of the out of the print media but we've got to do something and i don't know i don't know exactly what we've got to do because i feel like a lot of the reason not a lot but a partial a portion of the reason the labor movement is not moving forward is because nobody covers it in mainstream media whatsoever what do you think you know in, in your opinion i mean like i say your 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 newsletter your substack is absolutely amazing that this data driven it's very intellectually written but i mean and not, not a knock on you but there's no there's no uh, there's no way for you to get that out to everybody that really <laughs> needs to see it 
Right. I mean, well, I'll say this. The New York Times was not writing about, you know, the auto workers convention in the 40s because they were such fans of labor. Exactly. It's because they were a threat. So, you know, not even a threat, a social force. Right. So to even soften it, it's not even that conspiratorial. It's just it mattered to people because the unions were powerful. So to some extent, I'm like. You know, it is such a frustrating answer, and it's what everything boils down to in the labor movement. As you say, until we're we got the power back, there's there's not much we can do about these uh, you know secondary effects like losing the labor press. But I think I think it's a chicken and the egg for sure. I think people think there's no labor movement, and I also think that people who want there to be a labor movement. Uh, whether you're a local union member or a national leader, don't really have this this holistic sense of what's going on in the labor movement. You know, there's kind of a broad strokes kind of thing of, oh, well, you know, NAFTA, we lost jobs and it became a service economy and now it's like all downhill and we're just managing as we can, right? Or we're waiting for labor law to change or something like that. But until we get to big fights that matter to people. I mean, why is the Times covering Amazon? It's because it would really matter. And it's because Amazon's scared and because Alabama's really interesting for people who think that it's like there's no unions there, right? Or no union members or no workers who fight back there. So part of it is just, it's hard for me to, to, you know, it's an excuse, but it's true. Like (laughs) the papers covered this stuff when it was uh, a threat when we had yeah. when we had the power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and Jonah, I think that is a fantastic segue into um, into what I was talking to you about on the road in this morning. Um, you know, David and I are more or less kind of of the opinion that unions need to shift their PAC funding, which are not union dues, and we need to make that clear. But but we're kind of of the opinion that we need to shift that uh, funding model to organizing and marketing for unions, not for politicians. And so I think that's a really good segue into like how do we build power what happens to our money when we donate it to politicians we're going to talk about that on the other side of the break stay tuned this is the valley labor report you're listening to the valley labor report with david story and jacob morrison Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host, David Story. On the line, we have Jonah Furman. He is the author of an excellent newsletter letter about uh, what is happening in today's labor movement called Who Gets the Bird? Uh, you can find it on Substack.com. And uh, where we left off, David asked him wh- what he thought uh, it- it's going to take to get mainstream media coverage of the labor movement, and Jonah more or less said, well, we need we need a bigger labor movement. We need to be more powerful. And that, I think that's a really good segue because David and I, something that we've been talking about on and off the air is how much money unions funnel to Democratic Party PACs and to politicians and things like that. And I want to, every time I say this, I want to make it crystal clear. These are not union dues. These are funds that members voluntarily donate knowing that it will go to politicians so there's a thing about you know i mean they know what's happening with this money it is not a condition of membership in any union across the country but 
We do. We 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 ask our members to donate to these packs, and we have don't and unions have donated hundreds of millions of dollars to politicians just across the last ten years. Uh, and uh, but it, it's also important to point out that not only you know for ours we have the Machinist Nonpartisan Political League. Not only is that going to campaigns, but it also funds lobbyists. You know, it pays right. for me to go to D.C. Right. and make sure that my members are represented on, on in in D.C. as well. Yeah. So, and you that's, know, you just know, don't don't think of it as just oh we're just we're just helping politicians get elected right. because once they get elected, we're holding their feet to mm-hmm. the fire as well, making sure right. that they that they do the promises that they made to us. Yeah, and that that's an, an another. I think that's important, and that's. Um, good, and, but but hundreds of millions of dollars have specifically just gone to campaign yes. donations yes. and and for pol- political campaigns and, and so putting boots on the ground in Georgia. Yeah, and putting boots on the ground in Georgia. And so w- David and I have more or less kind of come to the opinion that the labor movement would be better off. Um, uh, um, within ourselves and electorally, we would be a better electoral force if instead of putting all those money all that money into political campaigns we had invested that in organizing and marketing for the union and putting uh boots on the ground instead of knocking doors for warnock and ossoff we put boots on the ground um knocking the doors on these amazon workers where uh, on these amazon workers houses or making calls or or like meeting people and organizing new shops and things like that and you're an interesting person to get your take on this because you're a political guy you were the labor or you were you were asking unions to do this you know for bernie and aoc more or less and so you know what is what is your kind of take on on unions in the partisan political process how do you feel about about that it's a great question i mean i think i would say to back up like there is this idea in the u.s labor movement that like we shouldn't rely on politicians right and sometimes this turns into a strategy saying we shouldn't do political action we should do you know the union should organize at the workplace will grow strong enough that's where the strength is if we build the power there it'll overflow into the rest of society into the rest of politics and things like that i just want to push back on that because we're starting in a very strange place in this in this story that we're telling about political action and unions right so most countries that have you know capitalist society have the industrial revolution more or less around the same time that the u.s did give or take some decades they formed labor parties right so they had unions of workers who were fighting for something in the workplace they realized they weren't going to get there with just a fight here against my boss or even here in my industry we needed something to legislate you know the state had to step in on certain issues and we did that here right that's what some of the new deal era stuff was when we invented a minimum wage when we invented you know limits on working hours uh when we, you know, legislated how unions can be formed. So I think we have an American tendency to say this political stuff of giving a bunch of money to politicians has failed, hasn't gotten us anywhere. Unions shouldn't be doing political work. We should be doing organizing work. The answer, which is less satisfying, is we have to do both. But the political system of of how unions operate is extremely broken. I mean, that is undeniable. 100% agree with you unions throw money at politicians who really get no return on that in a lot of cases in the best cases they play defense right they say well we denied a majority to the state legislature in this state so it's not going to go right to work this session it's very limited and to call those victories is you know you're really lowering the sights of what union political action can be so i think you're totally right to call out 
you know, the, these contributions, whether those contributions would be better off going to organizing. I mean, there's no question we need to invest much more in organizing. Should it come from political contributions? I'm open to it. I don't think those political contributions have gone very far. I will say the work that I did with AOC and Bernie is interesting because for the most part, these are campaigns that do not need union institutional money. We're getting union member money, right? People are given $27 at a time. And if you look at any part of the workforce or any union, there were surveys done, but it looks, you know, basically like the membership is donating to the campaign. So whether the official campaign wants to chip in a thousand dollars compared to the millions of their members who are just chipping in five bucks, it's really not of concern structurally to the campaign, right? So that's, and, and part of the different model here is that I think because we've come so backwards to political action from our union movement, because for a century, the union movement hasn't done anything politically independent of the status quo of the Democratic Party. I mean, and again, to go into this, why this matters is you wouldn't be in a union with your boss, right? So why are you in a party with your boss? Not even as a moral thing, just strategically, it's a problem because when your interests conflict with the interests of your boss, who has more money in the party, you're going to lose that fight, right? So whether it's about, we want the minimum wage to go higher, but in my party is someone who would lose money because they own a big company, right, if the minimum wage goes up. So suddenly you're going toe-to-toe with your boss on political action inside your party, which is just, you know, this is just not a political strategy. But I'll just say, I think these progressive campaigns that have, have kind of cropped up are this interesting backdoor into union political action that is what I've been trying to explore for, you know, over the past year especially, is like, these are poles of attraction for union members. They're excited about these politics, about mm-hmm. Bernie, about AOC, about they're giving money. We see that. They're knocking doors. They're volunteering all the time. I and mean, that's how I met David, right? Like, mm-hmm. I see this has an energy that the union's political program doesn't have. So can we use these political grassroots movements to find a backdoor into the union politics and say, here's what the union should be doing. Do what Bernie's doing. Your members like it. So let's mm-hmm. keep doing that. Right. So I think there's, there's an interplay here. I totally agree. I mean, you look at some of the spending and it's just, uh, not worth what you've paid. Yeah. So yes. Well, one of the things, and we've got just a few seconds left, but I want to touch on that, that point is one of the things that we really need to do or that the democratic party really needs to do is come back to the labor movement because what you see with Bernie like uh, such as myself and such as yourself is union members that are actively getting involved and making those calls for him uh, out, 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 out of the love because they see where he's benefited us and where he can benefit us as opposed to most of your liberals in the in the Democratic Party yeah yeah we're going to be talking to some more uh, to Jonah Foreman some more on the other side stay tuned Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story on the line. We've got Jonah Furman. He has uh, he has done labor organizing for Bernie Sanders and AOC, uh, and now he has a fantastic, very nerdy labor newsletter about the things happening in the labor movement today. You can find that at Who Gets the Bird on Substack.com. Uh, very good stuff. Very good stuff. We've been talking about the interplay between unions and electoral politics, and I think I think he I think Jonah, you're making a very kind of smart distinction there. Something that you mentioned that I wanted that I'm interested in your thoughts on is is that you said that in other countries in, in the Western world there have been created actual quote unquote labor parties. Um, 
whereas we don't have that in the labor move or, or in in America right now we don't have a labor party um, we have the Democratic Party where we've got workers and bosses in the same party but I mean uh, didn't this uh, hasn't the same thing happened in these other parties when you look at the labor party in Britain I mean bosses are in the labor party in Britain right I mean they that Neil like I I you know I haven't the the labor party in Britain and the Democratic Party in the US and and, and a lot of these other quote unquote labor parties in the western world followed more or less the same track as the Democratic Party did. When the Democratic Party was more pro-worker, they were more pro-worker, and when the, the Democratic Party went into the neoliberal decline, they did as well. You know, Tony Blair was uh, uh, just sure. as bad as Bill Clinton, from what I understand. And so is, you know, is the fact that there are parties that are called labor parties in other Western countries, is that really, like, such an important distinction, you think? I think it is. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. It, it's hard to, you know, the turn to the right in these parties is overdetermined, right? So there's plenty of factors that you can blame it on, and they all happen at once across the Western industrial world. There was recessions that happened on a basically global level. There's the third world debt crisis. There's things that happened that move these parties to the right. But it's not the case to say that the Labor Party in the UK and the Democratic Party in the US are the same. It matters that the Labor Party really was formed as a Labor Party. It was a workers' party that split off from the Liberal Party in the late 1800s, early 1900s in the UK. Yes, they've you know gone further to the right, and Corbyn is like you know Bernie Sanders trying to contest that party's political orientation. But there's first of all structural differences. So things like in the Labor Party, you know, there's actual membership and people have votes, and the unions have votes, and the members of those unions vote on how those unions should operate within the party. So there is a lot more of a mechanism there uh, to control or to be responsive to at least to the membership. But in the U.S., we never had that. And that, you know, there's plenty of re things you could point to to say, why don't we have a real welfare state here? But it's not like the U.K. and the U.S. are the same in terms of yeah. regular workers and how bad it gets for people and how good it can get for people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they have a national health system. We have... You know, not nothing, nothing, not in, <laughs> let alone doctors and nurses who are, you know, are employed by the government and mm -hmm. give you free health care. We don't even have we can barely get the government to cover your health care costs if that's, you know, if you need to use health care, which God forbid in this country. So, right. you know, I don't think it's the same to say uh, they've all gone to the right. So they're all the same. I think it's a very different world in which. You know, the first, we use the term PAC, right? The super PAC and PAC. The first political action committee, that was an actual project launched by the CIO, the Congre Congress of Industrial Organizations, in the 30s by John Lewis, who, you know, is the namesake of my newsletter. Th this was a real project, a real moment when labor almost did split off from the Democratic Party. And in a lot of ways, it was the New Deal that kept labor in the Democratic Party. I think if that had happened, you know, now we're talking ancient history, but if that had happened, we'd be talking about a much different political system today, right? You would have a party who sees its interest as advocating for and solely for workers' rights and, you know, the interests of the working class, as opposed to a cross-class collaboration party that, you know, no one can really tell you what the Democratic Party is about. Same with the Republican Party, but certainly not for the Democratic Party. What, you know, what is this party representing? Labor parties, in all their flaws, actually structurally are much more forced to represent the interests of the institutions of 
workers. They're super flawed. They don't always, you know, the punchline is not what you want to hear all the time. And they're subject to the same forces that, you know, any political party is subject to in terms of the global economy, uh, you know, wars abroad, things that, that happen to every political party. But I would say, you know, if we had a labor party that was as bad as the Democratic Party, I would still think we're ahead of where we are, because at least you have a structure to intervene in, right? You have something that's a little more clear that you can uh, participate in. It's very unclear how workers are supposed to change the, the, the direction of the Democratic Party today. It's a lot more difficult than a labor party that's just misguided. Hmm. I, I, and it's, it's probably important to point out, you know, that you, when, you, when you bring up the New Deal and, and the things that happened during that time, it, uh, is the fact that, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, no, no one ever recognizes Eugene Debs running, you know, in the mm-hmm. Socialist Party and pulling the Democratic Party farther left, you know, for, I think it was four four presidential elections, presidential cycles he ran, and the last time uh, he ran from prison, you know, so there was there was definitely a, a pull uh, on the Democratic Party to the left. But also, there's going to be people, especially people that I'm friends with that are far left that are going to think, and I want to make it very clear, I'm no supporter. When we're talking about a new Labor Party, I'm no supporter of the People's Party as it's trying to be <laughs> done right now. Just I, I mean, I swear to God, somebody on yeah. is going to watch this on YouTube and be like, oh, they're, they're pimping for the People's Party. Now, I have... Uh, and utmost respect for several of the people that have kind of aligned themselves with that, uh, uh, Dr. Cornell West being one of them. But uh, what what some of their lunatical uh, yes. fringe uh, followers are doing is insane. So just yeah. just I wanted to point that out before we got any farther. Yeah, well, so yeah. I, I think that's a that's a good pl- you know what do you how do you see the mechanism to go forward? You know, and I I. Th- I think you convinced me. I think I, th- I, I think that was. I think Jonah, you're very effective, and uh, you're very effective rhetorically. So, what what's the path forward towards getting a more labor oriented political party? Do you yeah. you know? Do you think? Obviously, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is the DSA and like parasitically using the Democratic Party ballot line, and then once they get enough power, then breaking off. But I don't. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts? It's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of this conversation is crystal ball stuff, which, like, I understand why people want to prognosticate and guess about what the future is going to be and be ready for it. I don't think we know uh, in terms of how this will happen. I do know. I mean, I basically think we're on the right track in terms of contesting this power, and we should have been doing it. You know, I wish that, you know, generations before us had been on this same track. I think the third party thing is a dead end and it's not i don't have abstract reasons for that it's just look at every 30 third party that's ever tried to do it look at what bernie just did if in two presidential runs and essentially created a magnetic pole around which a new movement could be built and it worked right i it it, it didn't work it, it hasn't always worked but i think you saw dynamics about that the same same type of thing in the 80s with jesse jackson's runs in the democratic party and i think that's essentially where we need to go I don't know if that means eventually, you know, it's something besides the Democratic Party that you put on your driver's license at the DMV or if it's, you know, just call the Democratic Party and it's unrecognizable. I don't think that's really that's not really interesting to me because it's just kind of like guesswork. Right. But I do think the reason to be in the Democratic Party is the same reason to stay in your union and to be active in your union. Why? It's because this is where 
working people are collected right now politically in the U.S., which is very few places, right? I mean, we are in a society that has social institutions have largely fissured, fallen apart. You know, people, there's the book, you know, Bowling Alone. There's like all these studies of this stuff and people don't do group activity anymore, right? And certainly not group activity with any political character and certainly not any political activity with a class character. So unions and the Democratic Party really still are where people of color are are gathered in, you know, super majorities. Working class people are gathered in super majorities. There's a lot to be said about the working class people in the Republican Party and especially working class people who don't vote at all. But if you look at the numbers, I mean, there's still millions and millions of workers in the Democratic Party who are going to vote blue because they know that between these two terrible parties, the Democratic Party is, you know, going to occasionally play defense, if not ever play offense. Right. So and the same is true for the unions. Right. We know that the unions, as imperfect as they might be, if I'm upset with my union, whatever it is, it's the only thing that gathers working people together on the basis of being working workers and brings new people in. Right. Because it, when you go to work and there's a union at the workplace, it doesn't matter what your politics are, you suddenly have to think about, do I want to be part of the union? Do I want to be active in the union? Do I want to, you know, build collective power against the interests of my boss? That's an incredibly powerful experience. So in terms of talking about a new ballot line or a new party, I think, I, I don't know how you look at the past five years and don't feel like we're going in the right direction. That's right. one of the things that's hard for me to to look at the, the People's Party stuff and some of the really critical uh, anti-AOC stuff is just mm-hmm. like, look, man, we had, there was no left movement 10 years ago in this yep. country to speak of. Now we have millions of regular right. people who know what democratic socialism is, who know what a union is, right, who right. didn't know it before. So I feel like we want to keep going where the people are. If the people go into a third party, then we should go with them into a third party. I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't think there's any reason for us to make plans to do that. I think the people, if you look at exit polls, you look at stats, they're still voting Democrat. They're listening. They want to know you know, who's going to run against Donald Trump. That's why it was important to be part of that. And I think mm-hmm. it's going to be important to keep doing that. We're going to have to have a Democratic Socialist run for president in 2024, whether we think it's a good idea or not, or that's how we want to spend our energy. Like it or not, that's where regular people look at for politics. Same with your union, right? People care about their wages, their health care, bread and butter stuff. Even if you're not interested, it's your job as someone who wants to make change in the world to meet those people where they're at. Where they're at is they're talking about my boss is, you know, is getting on me for coming in two minutes late to work. So you got to fight that fight with them. That's where the fight is, because that's where the people are. So that's my take on the on the third party stuff. I think it's a lot of navel gazing for the most part. And yeah. for the most part, just keep going where the people are. And that's the Democratic Party. And you just got to suck it up and get your hands dirty. It's OK. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like they're trying to derail the the yeah. the. The, the good work that's been done through Justice Democrats, through DSA and organizations like that, like you said, where we have seen mm-hmm. them push uh, push the Democratic Party farther left than we've seen in the past uh, in the past Decades. my past last yeah. time, my past lifetime. Mm-hmm. So they're doing good work. We just got to keep supporting them. Yeah, we're gonna yeah. have one more segment with Jonah Furman on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Just 
All right, folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line we have Jonah Furman. He is the author of a fantastic newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, on Substack.com. He uh, was previously in labor organizing uh, for Bernie Sanders and AOC. Uh, I've just got one more question for him, uh, unless you have anything that you else that you want to talk about. Uh, if anybody wants to call in, 1-866-494-9866. Again, that is 1-866-494-9866. Uh, so, Jonah, my question is, um, you know, we've been, uh, I completely agreed with your analysis. I've always thought that, you know, thir- third parties are kind of silly um, in insofar as they exist right now. Um, and, but, uh, you know, we, the, some of it has, some of the conversation today has been kind of pessimistic. You do a newsletter of every week about what's going on in the labor movement um, today. What is your, what is the most optimistic thing or things that you're looking at as you're, um, as you're writing your newsletter? And you can't say Amazon. I'm sorry, guys. You guys are in the spotlight right now. Amazon is the most exciting thing. But we can talk about other things, too. I mean, I think two things are what I'm looking for. And and I can give examples of this, as I did a little bit earlier. One is strike activity. And, And strike activity is so important for a few reasons. But to me, it's actually, it's not the reason most people think. I think the reason strike activity is so important is because the labor movement collects regular apolitical people who just have a job, right? You find yourself in this job and suddenly you're in this union situation, whether you're organizing a new union or you find there's a union at work and you're trying to navigate, you know, how does the union set priorities and things like that. These apolitical people are transformed by strikes. I mean, Mm -hmm. you see this win or loss, right? Like going through a strike experience is something that doesn't, no, no other political experience in our kind of U.S. vocabulary holds a candle to being on a picket line as a striking worker. And I've never been on strike myself, so I can't even speak from personal experience, but from talking to workers who 30 years ago went on a strike and changed forever how they view power, how they view their union, how they view collectivism in general. I mean, this is how political change happens is by people experiencing things like huge strikes. So that to me is always really exciting and it's always happening. I mean, it's happening at a tiny scale if you look at anything historical. So last year tied for the lowest in recorded history of strikes over a thousand people in the US. So we really still are at the bottom of the barrel. We have the teacher strike wave that was really exciting for a couple years that really did represent an uptick in the past 30, 35 years. but we're really still at the bottom here, especially looking at last year's numbers. But things like, you know, like I said earlier, I just got a notification that 800 nurses just authorized a strike in Massachusetts, 700 truck drivers in Arizona authorized a strike, teachers outside Pittsburgh just came back from a strike. We have 200 Teamster brothers and sisters in Minneapolis who are on strike. Uh, They're actually locked out now after three weeks. This stuff is really, you know, why I keep looking for this to see if you know one of those teamster brothers in minnesota is having this transformative experience and who knows what that means for that local union for politics in that city in that state Mm -hmm. and and the knock-on effects that we can watch for the other thing uh that i look for the most is is actually you know i mean it's related to amazon but it's organizing in core industries and this is Mm -hmm. something i don't think we talk about enough right we talk about new organizing like we want just more union members which we do but what we really really want 
is to build density in core industries for core unions that raises standards in a competitive industry, right? So it's, it's, it's actually different to organize 20 workers at a nonprofit than it is to organize 20 workers in the freight industry by the Teamsters yeah. that are trying to drive up standards in that industry wide. So one of the things I look at Amazon for is it's amazing that there's this Alabama warehouse. What really matters, I mean, it matters if these workers win, of course, for these individual workers and for the labor movement as a whole. But what really matters is when we start talking about a national or regional uh, agreement or standards that start going up for Amazon workers in general, Mm -hmm. warehouse workers in general, logistics workers in general, that's when you start talking about you know, that's when the New York Times puts it on the front page, right? And right now it's, it'll be in the business section. When there's a national agreement that raises the wage at Amazon, you're talking about that's what we saw in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. The National Master Freight Agreement in the 60s covered 550,000 truck drivers under one contract. I mean, that level of industrial fight back is really what we're looking for. So when I see things like you know, last week uh, a new election was filed at aerospace manufacturer for 300 workers in Indiana from, uh, I think I think it was the steel workers or the machinists. That's the stuff you like to see, right? You're like, this union is building back its power in its core industry that's going to meaningfully drive up standards for everyone in that industry. So even, you know, the digital media unionization wave that we're seeing is really interesting to watch because it's going to change digital media forever and that's going to have effects in our society because it's built density and changed an entire industry so those are kind of the two things i look at is strikes and industrial organizing in the sense of building density in core industries for core unions Hmm. it's interesting and jacob said that was the last question but i actually i thought up another one when you were bringing this up because i think it's important and i think it's important for all of our brothers and sisters out there for something to be considering because what we're seeing is great leaders like cooper caraway coming up Hmm. and what you're talking about is sectoral bargaining you know Mm -hmm. now you didn't specifically say that but that's kind of when you say uh you're wanting to see these these specific types of industries building that power uh industry-wide what do you think uh, because here's the thing when i bring up sectoral bargaining most members even very good members that i'm friends with their eyes glaze over they have no clue you know but i think that is the next i think that's the next big push that we should be seeing uh not only from the aflcio but also in our international and national unions and where are your what, what are your thoughts on that as far as how can we how can we open that discussion up more? Because it's definitely not happening, other than in a few radical labor leaders that that I follow. That's a great question. I mean, it's actually something I've been thinking a lot about because there's some folks in the labor movement who are talking now about sectoral bargaining, exactly. actually in response to Proposition 22 in California and some signs. I mean, it looks pretty good, but signs from the Biden administration that they're in conversation with Uber and, and gig working platforms that are talking about a kind of sectoral bargaining from the wrong direction. So I think sectoral bargaining is a key conversation for us to have, but like a third party, there's there's kind of the good version and the dead end yeah. version. Yeah. And, and of course, 
because this is all kind of symptomatic of the power of the labor movement, the version that's on the table seriously in kind of the halls of power right now is a scary version where Uber says, okay, yeah, the sector has these rates, right? But, and you can have worker representatives go to the table, say, we should talk about, you know, what should conditions look like in this industry? But if you don't have workers behind you ready to take action, you're coming to the table with nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So you can say, we want this, this, and this, and Uber says, you and what army, right? Right. So I think sectoral bargaining is definitely the horizon. I think if you look at the U.S. labor movement, we think of it as a firm by firm, you know, company by company bargaining uh, a scheme and and it is but at its best like when you talk when i talk about the national master freight agreement you approach sectoral bargaining in those in those conversations so for people who don't know sectoral bargaining just to make it clear like you know you have people you have fedex is bargaining with its employees ups is bargaining with its employees why not just have a scheme where everyone who does similar kind of work or is in a similar industry has one contract and usually in in european countries where this happens the state has some role to play saying bringing all the people to the table together and mediating the conversation in some way the problem is just like a labor a third party here or a labor party in in western europe those were built out of strength we're talking now about sectoral bargaining that would be built out of weakness and that's that's actually scary to me when you have you know the the industry coming to the table and the workers just not being there they're bargaining with themselves they're with a little help from the government right so Mm -hmm. they say here's what industry standards should be and there's no one on the other side to say actually that's not you know that doesn't match (laughs) what our workers actually care about or need and and that doesn't match what our workers care about or need and our workers won't accept it that's the important thing you know like you said if you say that's not what our workers care about or need and you're not organized there say well you know i don't care but if you've right. got people willing to go out on strike you know uh, people willing to stand up and say no i won't accept this and i've got the power to say no then that's a different scenario david you were saying something well i was just going to say the reason that i bring it up and the reason that i think it's so important is because i worked in germany for several years mm-hmm. and i see and, and and i don't care what anybody says until you've worked in germany and recognize the power of their labor unions and their sectorial bargaining it's it's mm-hmm. it is night and day difference between the power that we have, and I think if we're going to and the reason that I brought it up is I think if we're going to start making those pushes, we need to look into France and Germany and those places where you see truck drivers actually stop mm-hmm. in the middle of the interstate whenever they call for a strike and walk off and leave the goods sitting there. Mm-hmm. That is where you have the 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 leverage, not just over industry but over uh, the entire country Pol- politicians take notice industry takes notice and they get what they want and uh, you know the yellow vest movement is a perfect example of of that in france the past year right yeah totally agreed i mean i think the main thing is it's hard because i want people to think about worker power always has to be there any anything you're talking about political changes or how the union should operate you know it's all about uh, worker power is a necessary component, but you also can't lose sight of the big picture sectoral bargaining type stuff, right? We need people who are capable of both thinking about we need to build shop floor power, but we also yep. uh, are talking about big picture political questions. Yeah. Jonah, where can people find you? Uh, who gets the bird, just like it sounds, dot substack.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can find me, Jonah Furman. Jonah, like in the Bible, Furman, F-U-R-M-A-N. Wherever you want to find me, Thank I'll be you. to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Put it there, boy. We'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Mm-hmm.
right, folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host David Story. We just wrapped up an interview with Jonah Furman. He is former labor organizing for Bernie Sanders and AOC. Currently, he runs a newsletter on Substack.com called Who Gets the Bird? It is very good, very good. They're going over all the new union organizing, new strikes, new votes, um, uh, leadership elections. He wrote a really good piece about the Firefighters International um, leadership battle a while back. Um, good stuff. Jonah's awesome. Jonah's very, very, very good. Really enjoyed the conversation. And 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 you're not going to come across a, a nicer person mm-hmm. in the life. Yeah. You know, other than Max, Max is a great guy. Max is very nice. Amicable. Doesn't say a bad word about mm-hmm. anybody. Jonah follows in, or I don't want to say follows in his footsteps, but yeah, follows yeah, in yeah. that same mm-hmm. that same vein. Of very. Super nice guy. Very, uh, very into camaraderie and and good solidarity things. Yep. solidarity um very big fans very big fans so um you know we don't we don't talk about politics just a whole lot but uh there are some bills that are going through that 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 we wanted to talk about and and one so the first one that i wanted to talk about which really really grinds my gears and especially the way that i hear it presented um here on the station most of the time i talked to dale about it on thursday morning it was sb30 um what this bill does is the crux of the bill is it makes it more difficult for workers to um to prove that their employer behaved negligently okay that the the proponents of the bill are telling you it doesn't protect negligence it doesn't uh it ties to health guidelines blah 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 and like sure that's the text of the text of the the text of the bill says that but right Right below that, it increases the burden of proof from preponderance of evidence to clear and convincing or clear and compelling. I can never remember. But it increases the burden of proof. So functionally, literally, factually, if you have a negligent employer, it is more difficult to hold them accountable than it was Wednesday before Governor Ivey uh, signed this bill into law. Uh, there's a couple other problems with it. One is that it does not tie to federal health guidelines. It ties to local and state guidelines. Now, there's not a, you know... Uh, Which th- we all know is a joke. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't believe that there's just a whole lot of difference in there. But if we want to actually say we're going to tie it to health guidelines, let's tie it to all of them so that we've got all of our bases covered. Secondly, the bill is not actually consistent. If you read the text of the bill, which I encourage everyone to do, then there are two places where it sets forward um, these liability protections. In one place, it ties it to... Um, local and state public health guidance. In the second, it does not. It does not tie to uh, pu- uh, to local and state public health guidance in the second place. And Alabama Arise, which is a very good group. Everybody should follow their work. Follow Robin Hyden on Twitter. We talked to her on a midweek live stream a couple of weeks ago now. Um, they said that they reached out to a, tri- uh, to a bunch of trial lawyers. And they said, could this be interpreted as giving blanket immunity could it be interpreted um as they don't have to actually prove that they followed public health guidance because it's inconsistent and the trial lawyer said yes this bill if it is passed as written which it was there was no amendments on the floor uh and no amendments prior to uh, governor ivy signing it so it is the bill that we talked about robin and i on our live stream a couple weeks ago i encourage everyone to watch it the bill that was signed is inconsistent it has inconsistent language and it does not consistently tie the uh, boss's behavior to 
public health guidelines. And so trial lawyers believe that you could you could easily interpret that and a, and a defendant could make a case that they didn't actually have to follow public health guidance. Uh, you're being too nice. I mean, the fact that you use the word inconsistent with Senator Orr, because it's Senator yeah. Orr that wrote this bill, it's very consistent. And anybody that deals with contract language understands mm-hmm. when there's ambiguity in the contract language. It goes to the boss. Yep. And, and well, not just the boss. I mean, look, look, it's, it's a lose-lose situation. Mm-hmm. They gave the workers absolutely nothing absolutely nothing to fall back on for example you know and and there was something that i tweeted about earlier in the week for example you've got literally hundreds and thousands of elderly workers that Mm -hmm. that may be at walmart that may be at some of your grocery stores is interacting with the public on a daily basis Mm -hmm. they're the bill forces them to continue to coming into work regardless of what they think or quit Mm -hmm. as opposed and and just and and a lot of these workers are supplementing their income because we don't Mm -hmm. have a robust social security system to take Mm -hmm. care of workers once they decide to retire they're supplementing their income with these jobs whether it be part-time or full-time and instead of of putting some type of fallback and saying Mm -hmm. if you if if you believe it's unsafe then right. you can t- continue to claim unemployment insurance, mm-hmm. or th- they will they will have to bring you back as an employee once Everything this. Is yeah, and 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 it and it, it, it speaks to the fact of what Republicans in this state have consistently and Democrats, done. More well, Democrats voted for this bill than voted against it. What the hell? It speaks. Yeah, I mean you're right. It speaks to what we have seen in this state as far as legislation goes is always 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 looking out for the business and mm-hmm. and not giving a damn about the small working people in, yeah. in, in anywhere well anywhere. And, and you know like folks that are now, listening Chris England, have, let's let's be let's be Chris clear england, that's Chris england and like and three the others sister down in i think mobile uh i can't figures remember. No, it wasn't figures. I think it was Karina. I can't remember her name because I'm. We're of yeah. course we're not from the South, so we don't keep right. up with representatives. And four South. Democrats in the House, one yeah. Democrat in the Senate. Yeah, five Democrats total. We've got thirty something in our state legislature, and five of them voted against it. And Anthony Daniels. Anthony Daniels. Anthony Daniels. He's supposed to be the House Minority Leader uh, of the Democratic Party in in the House. He's supposed. Uh, Apparently, he supported it. Now, did he go down there and actually vote for it and put his money where his mouth is? No, he was absent during that vote so that that way, presumably, he doesn't have to take the flack for it later. But apparently, he's been coming on this station and uh, promoting this bill. But, I mean, you know, I don't, he owns a business. So there you go. Uh, but, but, you know, folks, I just I want you to think, like, critically about this. These bills are being pushed all across the country. All across the country, they're being pushed by powerful interests, uh, corporate lobbying groups. They're saying we need this protection in order to be able to function because frivolous lawsuits from our uh, greedy and lazy workers are going to put us, uh, make us bankrupt if we don't get these protections. All these powerful groups, you have not seen nor heard one. 
one case, not even one case that they're putting forward and saying, this is the proof case. This is why we need this legislation. There's not one instance of a worker filing a frivolous lawsuit that they can point to. Not one instance of a consumer filing a frivolous lawsuit that cost them money and made them go bankrupt. Not one. There is well, We've been, got numerous cases of people dying. Yeah. No evidence. No evidence that workers are engaging in frivolity with regards to their safety or uh, consumers with regard to their safety. There has been no case put forward by the business community for the necessity of this legislation. None whatsoever. And they expect us, the workers, the consumers, to believe that this is in all of our best interest. It's horse crap. It's horse crap, okay? They don't care about you. And here's here's the bottom line. This is what we've been saying on Twitter. You know, like, the more Democrats voted for this than against it, okay? So politicians aren't going to protect you. You cannot count on the politicians in Montgomery to protect you. Republican or Democrat, the best way to ensure that your safety is protected at work with regards to the coronavirus or anything else is to form a union and get a contract, get it in writing, That and, and that way you've got a real mechanism to hold them accountable. Because if you're reliant on the laws that are passed in Montgomery by the Republican Party and by the Democratic Party, you are not going to be safe. Yep. That's the bottom line. You've got I mean you you just can't. You can't count on these people. You can't count on them. You've got it. You've got it. You've got to stand up for yourself. You got to stand up for your brothers and sisters on the job in your community. That's the way to make your life better to ensure your safety. To ensure that you've got a, 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 a good compensation, a good retirement, good health care. I mean, you know, look, we're gonna t- we talk politics and we talk who's who, good politicians, bad politicians. Chris England has been against this and he's been forceful against it, and that's good. I appreciate Chris England and the people that were uh, that were against it and that fought against it. I very much sincerely do, but they don't have enough power to protect us. Yeah. We've got to protect ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and. Yeah, we there there there's there's so much to look at over the past year with people mm-hmm. dying, with the workers dying in South Dakota at the meatpacking plant, at the Tyson plant, mm-hmm. where where the managers was gambling on who was going to get it, yeah. how many people were going to get it. And, and, yeah, I mean, somebody asked me, "Where's the evidence that businesses are putting their employees in harm's way?" And I'm like, "What? What?" what? Are you like? Do you live in the same world that the rest of us do? They live in a bubble. They live in a bubble. It's insane. This is what happens when you watch Fox News every day. Those things aren't getting reported like what we see. But they, they, they I mean, basically, they've tied the workers' hands and said, you yeah. know, we're not going to allow you to do anything that would injure these businesses, even at the risk of your death. Yeah, and that's I mean, uh, that's not hyperbolic. That is mm-hmm. that is absolute absolute fact. We've seen it for the past year and we're going to continue seeing it so long as this is this is surrounding us and it's going to get worse because of legislation like this. I honestly I looked at it, I read through it. I didn't read like in depth, mm-hmm. but I honestly question if this is even constitutional. Can you can you can the state of Alabama take away a constitutional right of the redress of grievances. I don't know that it can, you know, but the problem is it goes back to the same thing that it always has. If you don't have the money to fight it, Mm -hmm. then, then there's nothing that you can do there. I mean, workers simply don't have the money to, to appeal these cases through the state, through the state 
uh, judicial system to the state Supreme Court and on to the to the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. There's just it's, they know mm-hmm. that that there's no way that anybody can come up with the funds to fight this. Yeah. All you can hope for is maybe the ACLU will take up a mm-hmm. case and push it forward. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really concerning. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, you, you got to do a union about it. I mean, that's the... You got to do a union. <laughs> I mean, it goes back to the same yeah. thing we're always I mean, saying. Build worker power. Don't yeah. rely on politicians. And then, and, yeah, and, and the We've more... We've relied on politicians mm-hmm. for entirely too long. And the, the more that we build worker power, the more that we're going to be able to, like Jonah said, contest this in the political arena. You know, the, like once we ha- when we have a union density rate in the state of 15, 20, 30 percent again, then, uh, you know, politicians are going to have to start paying attention to workers. And when, they're start, when, when they have to start paying attention to workers uh then you know you're not going to get terrible legislation like this passed i mean there, there's there's some other legislation you know you've got that wiretapping bill these supposedly small government conservatives want the government to be able to uh you know surveil you at their whim uh if they reckon you're that you're same, trafficking and drugs the same ones that's being censored yeah those same ones that yeah. uh that that hate big tech but they don't mind wiretapping yeah yeah i don't know um and and you know there's this one about um, the uh, uh, transgender youth that is really really problematic uh, you know because I don't I don't think people understand like the transgender health care that actually happens when the person is a minor um, for for one nothing is given to a minor that is actually irreversible the puberty blockers are not irreversible they're completely reversible um, and those are only given after like tens and tens of months of consultation with professional therapists and they're going to make this kind of health care illegal and people could go to prison for this. We There was a police officer that actually testified against it that has a transgender daughter and, and he said, you know, like, you're asking me to put cuffs on my heroes and that was a really heartbreaking testimony um, and, and, and it also makes it required by law for a healthcare professional or an educator or a counselor to tell a child's parents um, if the child expresses um, expresses any any inclination towards being transgender, and we know here in Alabama that that can really put people in danger. There are people that are like they they I mean you know people are still in Alabama kicked out just for being gay. You know, I mean, put them made homeless like this is and 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 to make educators bring that to their parents attention without the proper thinking through it. It's just not safe. It is not safe at all. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. This is the last segment for February thirteenth, two thousand and twenty-one. You can hear the show again uh, if you go to if you go to YouTube. Uh, you can search YouTube for the Valley Labor Report. You can also hear us, and you if you drive down to Russellville, you can hear us on WGOL, uh, and um, and you can hear us. We're on all of your favorite podcasting apps. You can go there. Uh, don't forget to. Um, Go to the Necessities Drive today, 3 to 5 p.m., and every Saturday, held by the North Alabama DSA at the IBEW Local Union Hall on Clinton Avenue across from Yellowhammer and Campus 805. They're doing good work there. Um, 
And uh, and you know if you if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. It really helps. Uh, we're getting we're we're uh, getting a pretty wide reach now. Our our friend on Twitter, uh, Rocket City QC, has told me that he's he, you know he's in the DSA and he's been on some of their restaurant organizing projects and and he said um, one of the folks up in Minneapolis listens to us regularly. I think uh, I think he said his name was Paul KD. Uh, you know, so we're we're um, yeah, we picked up. I mean, one of the guys contacted us last week. Was uh you know where was he? He was from Minneapolis as well. Oh, was it? Who was that? Uh, they reached out to us. Clint, yeah. Clint, oh no, Massachusetts. Nah, from the yeah, it was. Wasn't it Massachusetts nurses? Yeah. He's up north. Something like that. He's, He's a yank. North, yeah. yeah. So we're get, we're getting nice out there. Nice guy though. Nice, yeah, guy. nice guy. We're getting out there. Uh, the message is getting out there, even beyond the Tennessee Valley. And so you know what we really would like to do with the show is we would like to grow. We, you know we're on WVNN and WGOL now. Um, we would really like to be able to be heard on Saturday mornings everywhere saturday or sunday morning everywhere in the tennessee valley and we can you know this costs money we've got to pay the station um every month and so uh we volunteer our time every volunteer month? our time we are not making any money on this uh we're, because we're volunteering our time to do this because we reckon the message is important so if you support what we're doing uh supporting us on patreon would really really help uh sh- secure you know stable financials that way we're not so dependent on advertisers right now advertisers make up i would say something on the order of 70 percent of our uh revenue right now so uh l- l- being less dependent on advertisers would really really help and getting more support uh, will help That's us break thing. into other do what? That's the biggest thing. Is, yeah, is yeah. Get, we want to we, we really want to break want into to other markets. In, yeah, we one like, in the Shoals mm-hmm. and two in Birmingham. Yeah, we'd I really mean, like to. Yeah, we'd like to be in Birmingham, Montgomery, the Shoals, Nashville, Memphis, all over the Tennessee Valley and Alabama. We would love would love to do that. So Patreon.com/slash The Valley Labor Report is where you can go to support us if you are so inclined. Um, there and, and and so we're just going to wrap up talking about some of the other legislation. Um, not all of it's bad. Uh, they passed a coronavirus tax relief, which says that Alabama taxes are not going to be taken from the st- uh, from the relief. Check and from the unemployment stimulus, which is good. That is great. I support that. That's good stuff. Uh, A not good thing that they're doing that is just really weird is they're making the Star Spangled Banner be played in schools once a week. That's so weird. Like, And I'm not like an anti-patriotic person. I'm actually I'm actually much more patriotic than a typical like lefty. I fly a flag uh, outside of my duplex. Um, I actually, you know, I bought the flag. I, I installed it myself. Uh, I wear what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought the flag, installed it myself, uh, drilled into the brick there. Um, and and you know that's because like I reckon that you know m- my sense of, of America and Alabama is that like we have a history of racism and fascism and patriarchy like down to our roots right like it is in the DNA of America but also in the DNA of, DNA of America is the revolutionary spirit of Dr Martin Luther King Jr. Malcolm X the Black Panthers um, uh, the Young Patriots organization the Rainbow Coalition fights uh, Eugene Debs fights for justice and equality and fairness and worker power also go down to the roots of America. And so, like, I think that legacy is good. Uh, and, you know, I think I think that we can... I think that sometimes folks on the left maybe, um, like, 
like we stress the bad and we kind of forget the good and we forget that it's all tangled up in the same legacy. And so we can, you know, I think we can be proud of the legacy of the United States and, and I am, but like, and, and, and like one, it's, it's weird that the star spangled banner is like the first thing that comes into my mind. A lot of times I'll kind of idly like just sing a tune and the star spangled banner is like the first thing that comes to my mind. So I'll just like, I just run around my house singing star spangled banner, but like making people do things like that's just, that's just weird. Like, it's weird to me. I have never, never understood the inclination to do that. Never understood the inclination to, like, force people to do things that they don't want to do. And it's just, it's so, so, so weird to me. I don't, I, it, I can't wrap my mind around it. It's weird. It's like this kind of authoritarian mentality. Like, we've got to control the way people think. We've got to control the way people feel. And I'm just not about that. Like, if I've got an idea that I reckon is good, um, you know, I want to win in the battle of ideas. I want to win in the marketplace of ideas, so to speak. And these authoritarian kind of people, like, they they want to, like, you know, force these thoughts into our heads and force patriotism into people's hearts and you just you can't do that and um forcing well, it on you people can, but uh, i mean you can they are yeah well they're trying but i mean and they can they can make people do like the physical things but i don't think you can i, I think that forcing people to do that actually um does it does harm to putting putting this the pride of country in your heart it, it makes you less it makes you less in, in, inclined to be proud of your country, I think, yeah. when you're forced to show this symbolic patriotism and it doesn't actually come from your heart. It's like the same with church, you know, like you can't you can't force real Christianity or uh, a real religion on somebody like it's got to come from their heart. And I think that I think generally I think Christians kind of understand that. Um but a lot of times they kind of lose that when it comes to when it comes to patriotism. They reckon that they can just force people to think a certain way, and it doesn't. I don't think it. It doesn't work like that. Well, there's a reason, and and I'm I'm very uh, you know I've said it numerous times. There's a reason I don't use Nazi and fascism on our show much because it's so overused by the liberals, the liberal media, mm-hmm. uh, the Democrats in general, but. There's a reason why they're using that term as well, and it's because of laws like this where you see a right-wing legislature trying to push nationalism on everyone. And I'm not – and like you, I'm not against the Star Spangled Banner. I'm not against – prayer in school there's never been a ban on prayer in school anybody Mm -hmm. that wants to pray in school can pray in school but to force people to pray in school or to force people i mean it's at what point do you what at what point do you decide uh which prayer is right you know mm -hmm. the hell satan documentary proved the point that when you when you start opening the door up to these things, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it opens a door up for anybody else to do the same thing, and yeah. it's and it's ter- and it's terrible. It sets terrible precedent because yeah. at some point, right now, everyone is, believes that this is a Christian nation, and and I'm not saying that it's not, but at at some point. You well, I mean, lose you're gonna... that popularity, and then what? What happens? Well, then I are mean... you going to be forced to pray? Uh, somebody uh, uh, to, to and nothing against Jewish people, but are you going to yeah. be forced to pray to a Jewish god? Are you going to be forced to recite the menorah and things like this? Yeah. Well, I mean, even even in a Christian majority country, you're going to have Islamic people in your schools. You're going to have Jewish yeah. people in your schools. You're going to have pagans in your schools, and like obviously, we would balk at um, you know the, <laughs> the uh, yeah about being no made, matter who it is yeah being made 
to listen, being made to like listen to these things. Like, obviously, no one's going to stop Muslims from praying in school, and that's and we need to make space for that. We need to make space for Christians to pray in school. I remember studying the Bible um, during my breaks in school in in high school at some points, and and like no one ever got on to me for that. But like forcing this onto people is just so weird, and we've got to get out of that authoritarian kind of mentality. It, it's it's really. It's just real weird. Folks, we are going to be back next week. This is the Valley Labor Report. Make sure you follow us online.